0: All right, welcome back, uh, everyone. Um, Again, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I've gotten to uh, share a message uh, with you guys, of course, with uh, the snow, uh, and then uh, last week us being uh, out of town. Uh, And actually, it's a message uh, I think that I've been uh, ready to share uh, since a few weeks ago, because this message has been prepared uh, since then, and so I've gotten to stew uh, on this message uh, for a long time, and I'm really excited to uh, to share this message with you. Uh, we've been preaching through Jesus' life, uh, beginning in the Gospels, uh, and we're going to be speaking about that until uh, Easter time, and so we'll be working our way systematically, uh, chronologically, through Jesus's life uh, until we get to... Uh, the cross, uh, and then a little bit more. Uh, and it's just really, hopefully, impactful to see Jesus' life from birth almost uh, all the way to the cross. And, and and I'm hoping that over this big amount of time, this long stretch where we're preaching just right through Jesus' life, that you hopefully will be able to make a connection with him in such a way that when Easter comes, that it feels more personal, Uh, I, I, I can't imagine how many Easter's combined we've all celebrated here, you know, throughout all of our lifetimes, but I'm hoping that by Easter we see it as something quite personal and extremely triumphant because of how much we've dedicated to learning through Jesus's life. Now, today is a special message because we are covering and working through the Sermon on the Mount. This is a a big moment in Jesus's ministry. A few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, Jesus was baptized uh, and then how he went into the desert and spent 40 days there battling hunger, fasting, and the devil's temptations. And he came out of there and started his ministry. And if you could believe it, the Sermon on the Mount happens roughly a year after that time in the desert. There's actually a big amount of time where Jesus begins to speak on the kingdom of God that is coming soon and he starts to amass some people with him. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, a year into his ministry is where Jesus begins to unfold some important qualities of the ministry that is coming, of the kingdom that is coming. I know if you're, I wonder if you're familiar with a term called a stump speech. I think in our country we are uh, just overly saturated with campaigning, right? It's always on the news cycle, even though we're in the middle of a political cycle, we're still hearing already the ramping up of all of the campaigning and the promises and looking at all the different characteristics of the candidates that are going to be running. And so a stump speech is really a set of platform promises where they talk about reform, they talk about... Change. They talk about the things that they would do if they were elected officials, right? That's where all of it starts to be formulated. And so one can look at a candidate's stump speech to see what they are, quote unquote, about, what they're going to do. The origin of this term actually comes from an old time when candidates would actually travel around and they would actually stand on stumps. Because look at me now, I'm elevated so that the voice carries, right? Now we've got a few more tricks nowadays, but the term hung on, this is a stump speech. And much like Jesus' ministry, much like the candidates that are running for elected office, in this stump speech, in this Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus' set of campaign promises. We see what Jesus is about. We see what he is ushering in. And so paying attention to this Sermon on the Mount is tantamount to a Christian belief and understanding of faith and how Jesus represents God on earth in his three year ministry and really who we are now as Christians. These words paint a picture of what people are to expect, the promises and the vision that are made during a time of campaign are often what we look to when defining success if and when a candidate becomes an appointed leader. We're gonna continue this week in this series, entitled Jesus, where we're following Jesus through the Gospels. Again, we started in his youth, we talked about his baptisms, and now we get here. And again, the overall goal of our sermon has been this, of the series altogether, is to shrink the distance between head knowledge and heart understanding of Jesus. I know a lot of stuff up here, but this foot between here is a really big part of how I understand Jesus. I understand, yeah, his miracles. Yeah, he's the Son of God. Yep, I get it. Yeah, I know that. But once in my life, when this started to shrink and I started to see, oh, he really was a guy, he really was a man, he really experienced and did all the things he did. Pretty quick, I started to see inspiration. Pretty soon, I got to see Jesus more as a hero than a religious figurehead. And so the overall goal that we've had in this series is to shrink the distance between the head knowledge, the stuff you think you know, and the heart understanding of who Jesus is. Our goal is to make faith more tangible. Our goal is to make Jesus inspiring as we follow through him, follow with him throughout the Gospels. You know, in the fifth century, I don't know if you've ever heard this name before, St. Augustine. St. Augustine uh, is a philosophical, moral figure uh, that you can't go through Bible school or talk about philosophy without bringing up uh, St. Augustine. And in the fifth century, he wrote this in a book he uh, titled, Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And he says this uh, about that sermon. If anyone, if anyone would piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the mount, as we read it in the gospel according to Matthew, which is our source material, I think that he will find in it, so far as regards the highest morals, a perfect standard of Christian life a perfect standard of Christian life. Again, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And St. Augustine, arguably a guy who can talk about morals and the marriage of philosophy and theology and Jesus to life, he writes this. See how much he puts the Sermon on the Mount on a pedestal, recognizing it, as something that is foundational and again, tantamount to our understanding of Christian living. I think that we will find in it so far as regards the highest morals, a perfect standard of the Christian life, he writes. And I do not, I do not disagree. It's funny that I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon. It's kind of a weird, you know, kind of a breaking of the fourth wall kind of a thing. And so, if anything, if at the end of the day you learn n- not much from this message, I'm hoping that you could hear St. Augustine's words here and simply go home and read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Really, if you read straight through it, we're talking about 15 minutes. Just reading through it directly, I think, will be heart-changing in and of itself. And so as if you're going to put a bullet point down, if you're going to write a note, simply this, this week, just read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read Jesus' stump speech. See his promises. See the things that he is going to lay out for us as he lives on through the rest of the Gospels. Read through it. I want to break it down for you, though. I spent this time breaking it down as best as I possibly could. Matthew, uh, the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew is over three different chapters now, if you might not know this, it's a Christian tidbit uh, about the Bible or about Scripture in and of itself. A lot of times, it does one good to actually ignore chapters and headers because really, you can't, you can't rewind back in time and see Matthew or Mark or Luke or Paul or P- writing down in the beginning and then two. <laughs> you know, they, they did, the verses and then they came later, and so I think at at my at my, uh, at, at my uh, 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 effort, I've laid out Matthew and five, six, and seven in a way that I think makes sense to how one preaches. Like I said, it's kind of this weird fourth wall thing. And so first, I want to break it down, and then we're going to go through it. Uh, Matthew chapter five, uh, verse one through sixteen. So half of the chapter, I think, really it speaks to the hope to the listeners. To the people who are listening, it displays hope and how it really is, and it's basically known as the Beatitudes, this poetic intro, almost like a hook that a sermon has to have. So that's Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And then he writes this in 17 through 20. Now, uh, he talks about how he is here to fulfill the law, almost in rebuttal to his own hook, and we're gonna go through these. Uh, Matthew five twenty one through seven, six. So really the meat of the message. makes sense? It's only five, six, and seven. And half of Matthew and the first part of seven is all dedicated to the distinction of the law and the heart. So really, this is the meat, okay? It just in sheer force alone, you can see that it has a lot to do with the law and the heart. Matthew, oh, I'm not jumping through, am I? Uh, And then Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 12 is his application. Much like any sermon, you'll have the hook, right? You'll have the thesis, you'll have the body, and then you have the application. And Jesus does this here. Ask uh, and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 through 12 is an application. This is the call and response that Jesus lays out. He says, all right, here's all this. Now this is what you do. So that's Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Sorry, this is a brief overview. I see some of you jotting these down. And then Matthew 7, uh, 13 through 29 is a warning and consequence of non-application. It's really cool that Jesus himself gets to do this. You see, when I deliver a sermon and I give you a little bit of an intro, a little bit of meat, a little bit of application, I can't tell you what's gonna happen to you if you don't follow my application, I don't get to say, you're toast if you don't go home and do the thing exactly that I said to do. I don't, Reggie doesn't get to do that. But Jesus does, and he gets to do this in warning. Listen, ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find not, and the door will be open. Here's what happens if you don't do it. And he speaks with such authority. So it's this really neat thing that Jesus gets to do. Uh, you know, there's a few perks being a son of God. Now, we will get into it. I know that's quick, but I wanted to uh, give you a brief picture because I believe as Christians, we often make the mistake of almost looking at the Sermon on the Mount just really close, extremely close. We'll often just divide it into the Beatitudes, and then we'll talk about the salt and the light, and then we'll talk about, I'm not here to abolish the law, and then we'll talk about, you have heard it said, but I tell you the truth, and then you hear the uh, ask and you shall receive. We look We break up the sermon so much as Christians, I think out of respect, because we don't want to do Jesus a disservice of just zooming through his sermon. It's his stump speech after all. But I think sometimes when we look at it under too close a microscope, we do this disservice because, of course, you understand, once you take a step back, the picture is more clear, more easy to see. And that's why I want to give you kind of a layout so, maybe I'll post these on Facebook. You can compare notes to this when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on your own later. And I want to set the stage for who Jesus is addressing on the Sermon on the Mount. First, of course, he's speaking to Pharisees. We hear that word a lot, we've talked about it a lot, and really, it's the Pharisaical attitude that almost rises Jesus to come and to sort of set things straight. Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day whose legalistic approach to God was oppressive to the people that they were leading. These are the leaders whose approach to religious leadership was to model righteousness, not not bad in and of itself, by keeping it meticulously. Unfortunately, the bad part about being that level of meticulous and that level of obedient was that they were proud of how good they kept the rules, which was more a self-righteousness than a righteousness. It was this self-righteousness with which Jesus wasn't exactly thrilled. So here's the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing. And then there's the bulk of our listeners, the occupied Israelites, God's people who are occupied by Roman company. And so they are listening also. These are God's people who have not, not heard from God directly, which they used to. They'd have these judges. They would come. They haven't heard from God for 400 years, okay? So it's kind of a big deal here, Jesus. That's who he's speaking to. They get their guidance from the Pharisaical leadership, but again, because of their self-righteous approach, their guilt-laying approach... With Jesus, or their guilt laying approach, these Israelites felt oppressed by their leaders. They weren't quite helpful. Imagine, Reggie, if my heart as a leader, my ministry, personal ministry model, was to simply show you how much better I am at keeping the law than you. Jake, that was really awful that you did that thing last week. I would never do that. Everybody, look at Jake. He's not that great a follower, but look at me. I'm, if I were in his shoes, I would have done it much better. Can you imagine the oppression? How refreshing Jesus would be if you, an occupied Israelite, would hear, yes, thank God, we're hearing it differently. Because of this setting, because of the people who Jesus is speaking to, Jesus' next words, his intro... Matthew 5, 1 through 16, these Beatitudes, these next words are incredibly striking. There couldn't have been a better hook in a sermon than what Jesus displayed in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom uh, of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed uh, are those... Of heaven, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you... I think I'm getting ahead. This is too far. Okay. I think it's a little long. All right. Hearing this address, this beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers and such is such a hook to the mass of people that Jesus was speaking to. These words either piqued your interest because it wasn't what you've been hearing from the current leadership, or it piqued your interest because you are leadership and you don't like where this is going. I think it's amazing that Jesus is able to address two sets of people in one setting. Again, a masterful speaker, a masterful teacher, to be able to talk to two sets of people at the same time. Jesus is flipping how everyone thought things were supposed to go. Anyone who thinks that they deserve uh, or that they are rich or that they are great, they are not destined to inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who look at others with sympathy, who are there to make peace. Those who inherit the kingdom of God are those who are genuine, Furthermore, Jesus infuses hope into his listeners when he references them as the salt of the earth or the light of the world in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, reminding his listeners that they are God's chosen people. They are not meant to be these oppressed, occupied people. They are God's chosen people, and he reminds them of that. That's not what they're used to hearing. So as far as a sermon writing goes... It's quite an introduction, quite a good hook. Now next, Jesus sets up what's going to be the meat of the message by warning people. He says, now don't get me wrong in Matthew 17 uh, through 20 here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus' intro puts things so upside down, so reverse, that they might think, wait, is this guy shucking Moses? Is he shucking Old Testament history and law? Is is that what he's saying? That because he's addressing the leadership and addressing us at the same time, is he shucking that Moses' law? Jesus is saying specifically that he is not here to cancel the old law. Instead, Jesus gives it its full and true meaning. It doesn't mean that we cut our Bibles in half and toss the bigger part in the garbage. He prepares his listeners because what he's going to say throughout the rest of the sermon might allow one to think that the law will no longer have purpose. Instead, he reveals the purpose of the law. He reveals its purpose. He's giving to us its full and true meaning. It's a standard, that law that has been on top of all people, on top of the Israelite people from Moses, it's a standard by which no one, including the Pharisees, can be fully obedient to. In fact, Jesus continues saying, Jesus will say uh, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? These guys are the top dogs at rule keeping. So I actually have to be better that, then their rule keeping to get into heaven, that's impossible. It is impossible. Jesus is revealing the true meaning of the law, that he is here to be our substitute for fulfilling that law. Make sense? You can't do it, Doug. You can't, you can't follow the rules. You can't. I know you can't. <laughs> but you get to take Jesus on, right? Because he can. And he's fulfilling the law in this verse, and so he continues. In fact, he starts to dissect the law. He starts to reveal its true meaning in the bulk of our message. Oh, and I left this out, didn't I? Salvation is not about the rule keeping. That would be the Pharisee, uh, the Pharisaical part here. We'll move on to Matthew five twenty one through seven six. This big bulk, this law versus uh, the heart. You see, the Pharisees, as I said, they were the ones good at rule-keeping. They think, that rule, uh, they think that rule-keeping, that rule-following in and of itself is what pleases God. They think that keeping the rules, that's what pleases God. However, the Pharisees who take pride in their rule-keeping don't have true righteousness, right? I said it. Instead, they have self-righteousness. Imagine this. I'd hate if this was the case, but imagine this. Imagine if Carter, my son, my eight-year-old son, thought that by doing dishes, uh, by cleaning his room, uh, by doing his chores, that it was those actions in and of himself that is what pleased me. Imagine that, if it was the chore itself, that I'm only made happy and I'm pleased by his actions, by cleaning the room in and of itself. And then, and, and then furthermore, as, far, as a Pharisee's example would go, then if you were to lord the, that fact that I potentially love him more than Lucy, my 6-year-old daughter, because he does the chores. One, that's not right. And two, why should he make his little sister feel that way? It's the heart that desires to please God. That pleases God. It's the heart that desires to please God that pleases God. Does that make sense to you guys? It's not about how good you can keep the rules. Doug can't keep them. Even if he tried his best, he can't because we're human. And so it makes so much more sense that it's the heart that genuinely desires to please God that pleases God. God. I'll give you an example, Matthew 5, I think 21 through 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. So here he is bringing up Moses' law. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Makes sense. That's a pretty good rule. In fact, I think we still use that one. It's still around. It's a good one. But I tell you, see, here's Jesus clarifying, revealing the heart of the rule. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, sister, raka, or translated stupid or empty-headed, rock-headed, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, I can tell you this. I haven't done this. I have not done murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister... Will be subject to judgment. Yeah, I I done that one. <laughs> I done that one. I've at driving here, I think I called someone a fool in traffic. And yet and I'm in danger of the fires of hell. I think it reveals. And he goes on, multiple, multiple, multiple. I think it reveals to you. You can't do it. You can't follow all the rules. Jesus is shucking the religious leadership in their rule keeping. He does it over and over again. He'll talk about murder. He's going to talk about adultery. He's going to talk about the true meaning of divorce. He's going to talk about how you should just keep your promises. He's going to talk about revenge. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, off, turn the other cheek, right? He says, you've heard it this way, but really it's meant this way. Love for enemies Giving to the needy. He's gonna talk about how one should really pray because then the Pharisees would pray out loud and look how good my speech is and I'm so eloquent with the words that I use and I will do it publicly so you all know how amazing I am at, pr- at praying. And Jesus would say, that's stupid. You're supposed to be doing that at home. That's ingenuine. Those are the stuff that Jesus got riled up over. He's gonna talk about fasting the same way the pharisees would do it publicly because they like to look good they like to be self-righteous he's going to talk about the treasures in heaven he's going to talk and this is a subsequent you see he's he's going to talk about how you should store your treasures up in heaven you should not keep your riches and your monies to yourself on this world because it's simply temporary and this subsequent point, which is such a big one. I've memorized this scripture. I think you should memorize it too because God will often blink this one into my mind when I am starting to worry, which I'm prone to and I know a number of us are prone to. The subsequent do not worry about your treasures on earth follows this point. There's this really cool direction that Jesus is going into. He's going to warn us about judging others in Matthew 7-1. Through six. He goes the bulk of this sermon as he says, You heard it this way, you heard the law this way, but I'm telling you the truth, this is what it really means. This is how you can stack up. This is what it really means. The difference between the legalism that the Pharisees were self-righteous over, the difference between the legalism that they displayed. To others, and an obedience that we're supposed to have is the heart, is the intention, is the purpose behind the actions. You see, obedience and legalism, obedience and legalism on the surface are nearly indistinguishable. They're nearly indistinguishable. They look alike, but the key difference is the desire, the intention of the actions, the purpose of the obedience, the heart. That's the difference. A Pharisee is legalistic, but you and I are called to be obedient. That's how we show our love to God. Not because it's called of us, but because we're compelled to the obedience of following Christ. It's how we show our love to Him. If we are after perfection, if we are after perfection, or pleasing God through our actions, let me tell you a truth that might be quite devastating. You're going to continue to sin. You will continue to fail. If you're trying to please God through your actions, by your service, by how good you do it, you're gonna fail. You're, not, you're gonna get better and better at it, but it ain't good enough. It will never cut it. You will not get to the pearly gates you will not be able to hand in your own personal reggie ticket. You can't. But remember, the heart that desires to please God is the one that God is pleased by. Matthew 7, 7-12 here, Jesus gives us our application. Because he knows it's not possible... Then he gives us this life preserver in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. It says there, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus is giving you a promise that if you reach out, he will be there. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You can't do it on your own. He's revealed that much through the mo- through the. Uh, majority of his sermon. But guess what? I'm here for you. If you ask, I'm right there. If you seek, you'll find me. If you knock, I'm right there for you. Whatever you're going through, you must lean on God for provision and for blessing. You cannot do it yourself. It can't be done on your own. This is a universal truth in application for both listeners within Jesus' audience, the self-righteous leaders, and the oppressed followers. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it good enough. So ask. Seek me. Open the door. He gives us this life preserver. And in Matthew 7, 13 through 29, he finishes with these warnings and the consequence of non-application. Jesus knows, he knows that people will not heed his words. And in fact, people will try to turn people against him because he will warn about false prophets. He's going to warn about false disciples. Matthew twenty uh, seven twenty four. 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man uh, who built his house uh, on the rock, Jesus continues on to the consequences of not heeding his words, which is a part of modern preaching, again, that I said, that gets left off. Jesus is able to speak with authority. He knows that ignorance of these words will lead to a bad place. Modern preaching doesn't get to do that because us preachers sometimes we're too afraid to hurt your feelings. If I saw Jake goofing off and doing something bad, from the pulpit, I can't say, that was stupid, Jake. I can't do that. One, that's mean. But t- we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Jesus gets to do that. He gets to say, all right, I'm out. <laughs> See you later. If you want to follow me, sweet. If you don't, good luck. <laughs> he gets to do that. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not, not as their teachers of the law. Can you imagine being there? Close your eyes, I don't know what. Try imagine being there, seeing this man that you've been hearing rumblings about and hearing this great hope in Jesus as a man who comes out against the status quo, swinging. Because here, he's pretty much antagonizing what would eventually lead to his own execution. These are the men who are going to crucify him, and he's picking a bone with these guys. Jesus will definitely continue to teach throughout his ministry but this big block of scripture, this stump speech, are the foundational ideals of his, of this religious culture that he is trying to fix. Here is a man who came out, saw the status quo, and picked a fight with it. That's a big deal. When we see his criticisms, when we see the things that he's trying to course correct. What in them do you think we are seeing in our religious culture now? Do you think you're seeing a lot of name calling in our religious culture? Do you think you're seeing a lot of pointed fingers? Are you seeing a lot of criticisms, negativities, erring on the side of legalisms? Or maybe even in you? Do you sometimes feel that? Who in the crowd are you? Are you the religious leadership who's just, ah, oh, they're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong? Or are you the guys saying, oh man, this guy's what I've been waiting to hear. I've been waiting to hear a hope in this hopelessness. I think as you read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I hope that that's the kind of question that you will ask of yourself. Who am I in this crowd? How do I course correct? You know, again, what St. Augustine had written if there's any other kind of scriptures that you could read, this is one that I think can inform your Christian moral standard. Not out of obedience, not out of legalism, but out of a compulsion to live a life that Jesus, that God has designed for you. Let me offer a word of prayer and then we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, uh, it's such a gift that we would have an opportunity to read these Miraculous words of your son, Jesus Christ. Thousands of years ago that we get to hear his triumphant speech about the kind of kingdom that is to come, a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of the heart, uh, a kingdom of grace and forgiveness, and a kingdom where your son will be there for us when we genuinely reach out in hope uh, of his salvation, of his grace, of his leadership and teaching. Uh, Father, I pray that none of us would take these words uh, for granted. Uh, Instead, Lord, that your son's miraculous words would inspire us, that would compel us to lofty heights uh, of transformation in obedience. Not a hard heart of legalism uh, that points the faults out in others. Instead, of pointing a hand that stretches out to grasp that hand of another who needs help, who needs love, who needs your son, Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these. Thank you, Lord, for these words. I pray that as the week goes on, we'll read them each and be convicted in some personal way by them. I pray these things in your heavenly son's name. Amen.